Good Tuesday. This is Ozarks at Large for August 23rd, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. It is primary runoff day in Oklahoma. Among the races, the GOP nomination for the U.S. Senate seat being vacated by longtime retiring Republican Senator Jim Inhofe. As students get back to classes this month, we lean into a back-to-school theme on our show today. In a few minutes, Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports on the Equality Cruise Back-to-School Guide specially created for LGBTQ plus students. And later, we'll follow the path of Camille Dawson from graduating from Fayetteville High School to her current job with the State Department, where she is Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. We start with something new at a Springdale school, a solar park. Yesterday morning, the switch was ceremoniously flipped for more than 7,000 solar panels at Sonora Middle School. The array is a collaboration between the Springdale School District, Ozarks Electric Cooperative, and today's power. Yesterday, we talked with Justin Northcutt, systems engineer with Ozarks Electric, about the solar park. He says the panels can produce about 2.4 megawatts of power. That, that's enough energy to power, um, say, 500 to 600 homes is, is about what it'll produce. And um, that energy is goes right back to the grid. Uh, and the energy produced is used to offset the usage uh, from some of the Springdale schools, the Snore Elementary, Snore Middle School, and the School of Innovation. How does something like this come together? You mentioned it's a partnership. How, you know, take me as easily as you can through the the incubation of this project to flipping the switch. Well, it it really starts with our members. Um, we're we're always looking for in, innovative ways to serve our membership, and the Springdale schools. Um, and let us know of their um, their desire um, to get into uh, renewable energy and, and their desire to reduce uh, their electricity cost. Um, so we kind of came up with a solution, uh, brought today's power to them uh, as an option. Um, it's, it's you know it's an agreement from between the three parties. Uh, today's power is helping uh, provide their renewable energy needs. Uh, and part of the project is the battery storage system that allows us to offset our wholesale demand. Uh, electricity is very expensive uh, during the summer, during afternoon hours. And we use the battery system to uh, dispatch energy that's generated in the morning hours when we typically don't need the energy. And then in those afternoon hours when the wholesale prices are very high, uh, we release that energy back into the grid. And that saves our membership uh, money. What does it mean for you as a systems engineer? What what did you have to do uh, for this project? So you've got the 2.4 megawatts of solar generation, uh, almost 7 megawatts of battery storage. Um, so this is enough energy uh, to serve thousands of homes. So from an engineering perspective, uh, we've got to integrate uh, that into our distribution system. Um, still have to provide uh, reliable power to all the members that are connected uh, to the circuits fed from this uh, battery and solar installation. Still have to meet engineering regulations, public service commission regulations. Uh, so there's a lot of integration that goes into this. Is this site particularly better than others for solar? Uh, from a utility perspective, this is uh, fairly close to one of our substations, uh, so that, that makes things a little bit easier on the integration side. Uh, there wasn't a lot of new construction that had to happen uh, to get the system, uh, get this system integrated into the distribution system. What does it look like? It's a, um, it's a little bit different than what you would see um, Probably the most common thing people see is solar on rooftops, solar on homes. Uh, this is a ground mounted system. Uh, it's east-west tracking. So it tracks the sun from east to west in the morning. When you say it tracks it, does that mean it moves? These move? Yes, yes. The panels are single axis tracking from east to west. So they rotate along a, a single axis. Um, as the sun comes up, um, they're facing to the east and, and midday they're facing almost uh, directly up. They would be flat horizontal. 
and, and continues to track the sun uh, to the west. Um, then they've got a um, motor system that uh, during the night, they reset themselves back to face east again. Justin Northcutt is the systems engineer for Ozark's Electric Cooperative. We talked with him yesterday by Zoom about the new solar array at Sonora Middle School in the Springdale School District. The Equality Crew, a nonprofit organization based in Fayetteville, which provides safe space to gather and programs for LGBTQ plus young people in Arkansas, is publishing a back-to-school guide. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. The Back to School Guide for LGBTQ plus students and families is a free clickable digital book that provides a motherload of information beginning with LGBTQ plus student rights. Michael Bennett Spears is program director for the Equality Crew, which published the guide. Those LGBTQ plus student rights, that section is to say, these are the things you are entitled to. You know, this are, these are things that no one can take away from you. And, you know, with that, it pretty much boils down to you have the right to be who you are. You have the right to be respected as who you are. And you deserve the resources you need to be successful. The book lists ways to choose when to come out and how to come out to family, teachers, classmates, and friends. The freedom to declare a true gender identity. The right to defy being misgendered the right to form LGBTQ plus student alliances, which some schools and districts historically have blocked in Arkansas, how to report harassment or physical harm to authorities, and filing formal civil rights complaints. The book's geared for youth age 10 and older who, data show, are at risk for being bullied and assaulted by peers. Of course, your first step is always going to be to talk to your teachers, administrators, counselors, that kind of thing. But unfortunately, sometimes that's not enough. Um, sometimes you don't have those supportive people in the schools that will address that. And so it's important to let the students know and their caretakers know that they actually have measures available to them outside of the school. The guide also includes a gender support plan. The gender support plan is something that I parent or adult caretaker, however you want to word that, can sit down with the student and literally write out a plan of, okay, this is your preferred name. These are your pronouns. This is your gender identity. And they can actually go to the school, sit down with the school counselor and their teachers and say, this is who I am. These are the things I need to support this. Below that is a hyperlink to a secure database of LGBTQ plus affirming teachers and staff. We developed a Google form that they can go and fill out all the information. And pretty much it's the teacher's name, what school they teach in, what building they're in, what grades, and even like what subject area they cover or anything extra they would like us to know. And all of that information is completely confidential. It is held only by the equality crew. And then a we have that in a database. And then basically a student or their adult can come to us and say, hey, my kid's going to seventh grade at Ramey Junior High, da, 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 who are their affirming people. And in turn, we'll take that, go through the database and send them an email saying this teacher, this teacher, this school member, this staff, this librarian. Also, there's a GSA ran by this person in the school. Here's all their emails and how to contact them. That acronym, GSA, stands for Gay Straight Alliance, which are student-run and school-sponsored support groups. Not all therapists are equipped to process LGBTQ plus trauma, but the Equality Crew is in the process of compiling a list of affirming practitioners in Northwest Arkansas. So they can break it down to what are their modalities? What's their specific? Do they deal with grief, group, group therapy, family counseling, EMDR? And so you can go through that and find precisely what fits you and know that when you go to someone for mental health help, that they're going to be affirming of your identity because there's nothing scarier than going to this person that their literal role is for you to bear your soul to and be terrified that they're going to have judgment against you for who you are from the get-go. The guide offers back-to-school tips on locating allies, how to safely declare names and pronouns, and locating safe places on campus to be at ease. We point out in there that libraries are often the safe spot for kids, um, and that's even shown in our database. There are so many librarians on there, which I find 
great because that was my place as a kid in school was I went to the library and hung out with the books and it was quiet and that librarian was always going to control that space. The guide offers a link to a special online gaming community. Called Shadow's Edge that has a distinct focus on mental health awareness, but they built that into a gaming program. So it's not just this droll, boring, like sitting there, someone talking to you about your thoughts. And as a teenager, you don't want to do this. Instead, you go and you play a video game and you make friends with other people and they have therapists who actually play in the game as well and are available. And it's really fascinating. And as someone who is now in my mid 30s, I'm very jealous that I didn't have this as a kid. Annual LGBTQ plus events for youth, including key pride gatherings, are listed in the resource guide. Providing functional encouragement to LGBTQ plus youth is crucial. The Human Rights Campaign State Equality Index reveals a record number of bias laws are being enacted by conservative majority state legislatures these days that aim to deny and invalidate LGBTQ plus youth in public school settings, athletics, as well as access to affirming health care. If you go to the Trevor Project's LGBTQ plus youth in the South survey, Their survey showed that 69% of 18 to 24-year-olds had either fair or poor mental health in their reporting. Um, There's also an increased risk of attempted suicide amongst youth. And that's where that this becomes so important. Michael Bennett Spears is currently traveling to school districts to share the back-to-school guide for LGBTQ plus students and families. To learn more, search the resources link on theequalitycrew.org. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Still more in the spirit of back-to-school later on today's Ozarks at Large, we hear from another Northwest Arkansas teacher who participated in this summer's Northwest Arkansas Writing Project. Anita Ellis is a teacher at Springdale Harbor High School, and she'll tell us why writing is a great way to expand the classroom. That's coming up later. Governor Hutchinson says the video of three law enforcement officers conducting a violent arrest in Mulberry in Crawford County shows reprehensible conduct. In which uh, a suspect uh, is beat in that fashion. Uh, we saw a glimpse of that. It is under investigation. We don't have all of the details, and certainly uh, that suspect had a history of, of uh, concern that was legitimate for the officers. But that what that response was was not consistent with the training that they receive as certified officers uh, with the Arkansas Law Enforcement Training Academy. Uh, That will be investigated by the state police. Governor Hutchinson says he understands the United States Attorney and the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice will be conducting a separate investigation. The governor says he talked with the Crawford County Sheriff about the investigation. The officers, two Crawford County deputies and a Mulberry City officer, have been placed on administrative leave following the viral video which shows the suspect being kicked, hit, and having his head slammed into the pavement. Uh, I did want to say uh, this is not what our law enforcement community represents. It's not the proper response, and uh, uh, they will be reviewed and uh, appropriate action taken uh, consistent with uh, what the investigation uh, le- uh, we learned from that and what it, the results are. Colonel Bill Bryant from the Arkansas State Police says the ASP will be using its Special Investigation Unit to conduct its inquiry. It's going to take some time. They're out there working right now to to gather the facts and the evidence. And once we get the facts and evidence, they prepare a case file and a summary, and then we'll turn it over to the prosecutor, who then will decide what the appropriate charges are. Colonel Bryant says it will be up to prosecutors involved in the case whether to release body camera footage of the arrest. The comments were made during a press conference yesterday that was primarily scheduled to discuss the state's approach to combating crime across the state and especially in the Little Rock area, including the governor's launching of the Gang Enforcement Task Force a few years ago, the appropriation of $75 million for additional prison space in Arkansas, and a $1 million allocation to assist prosecutors and public defenders advance court cases slowed during the pandemic. You can see the entire press conference on Governor Asa Hutchinson's YouTube channel. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. 
Little Wing Productions presents The Righteous Brothers, the legendary American musical duo, live in concert Saturday, December 10th at the Auditorium in Eureka Springs. Reserve tickets go on sale this Friday, August 26th at tickets at thundertix.com. For more, theaud.org. This is Ozarks at Large. Camille Dawson visited her hometown yesterday. She's a 1991 graduate of Fayetteville High School. Now, she is Deputy Assistant Secretary of State at the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. She was in Northwest Arkansas yesterday for meetings with the Arkansas Coalition of Marshallese, the Fayetteville Chamber of Commerce, and faculty and students at the University of Arkansas. She also came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to discuss diplomacy in a 24-7 world that's still working through COVID-19 and to talk about her trip from Fayetteville High School to the State Department. Obviously, there are lots of different ways you can you can get there, but my own personal journey was that uh, I graduated from Fayetteville High School in 1991 and then went to the University of Texas. Uh, and uh, while I was there, I had a great class my junior year in U.S. foreign policy. And that kind of uh, got me thinking about the State Department and diplomacy as a career and, uh, and so from that, I decided that I wanted to have an experience uh, living abroad after college. So I moved to Japan, where I taught English for two years on a program called the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program. And from there, went to graduate school in international affairs. And uh, the State Department Foreign Service has a process of entering through an exam system. So I took the exam while I was in graduate school and was fortunate enough to, to pass the exam and then entered the State Department uh, in January of 2000. Uh, and uh, it has been now coming up on 23 years that I've been with the State Department, and it's been a great journey. With, with this job, with this title, is there a typical day for you? I mean, what, what might a day for you encompass? Well, um, that depends on whether or not I am sitting in Washington, D.C. at the State Department headquarters office or whether I am traveling. Uh, usually, if I'm traveling, that would mean I'd be overseas uh, doing the important work of diplomacy, but sometimes that would be uh, domestic travel within the U.S., doing something like I'm doing here in Fayetteville today, which is talking to people about what foreign policy uh, issues are relevant and trying to understand what uh, local communities are concerned about as relates to foreign policy. But a typical day, if I'm sitting in my office in Washington, um, is mostly filled with meetings, uh, and those meetings are usually about coordinating our policy with uh, Asian partners. So one of the things that I'm very involved with is something called the Quad, which is a partnership between the U.S., Australia, India, and Japan. Uh, and these four large democratic countries are all working together to identify um, the the needs of the Indo-Pacific region and how we can work together to deliver solutions to the problems and challenges of the region. Um, so uh, every day I have at least one meeting that is either with those quad partners or is about the work we're doing with the quad. Um, I very frequently have a meeting that is related to something about um, our uh, our work in the region to share the image of the United States. I oversee our public diplomacy programming for the Asia-Pacific region. So what we are trying to do is inform and educate foreign audiences about what the United States is and what our 
policy and values are. Um, so it's a it's a lot of meetings, sometimes with foreign partners and sometimes with our own internal staff, setting our own objectives and outlining how we're going to go about achieving them. Yes. You mentioned the Quad, four <laughs> large democratic, four countries that democratically elect leaders. Leaders change in all of those sure. countries. So policy from the United States might shift a bit or policy requests might change from your three partners. That's where the flexibility comes in? Yeah. Um, well, so that is a very real scenario. In fact, uh, in just the past, um, over the past six months or so, we have had a leadership change in both Japan and Australia. What we see, though, is with this particular partnership, um, it's not the the objectives are such that um, in any of the four countries, we do not envision that a change of administration, a change of leadership, would would result in a change of the commitment to the broader goals, because what we're working towards is maintaining the peace and prosperity and security of the Indo-Pacific region. And I guess I should stop there for a minute to say that the Indo-Pacific region, as we talk about that, that's a relatively new term. Um, But the Indo-Pacific region encapsulates uh, everything from India to the west coast of the United States. And our definition, that can also be defined as Bollywood to Hollywood. Um, So that's a huge region. Uh, But what we are working on together with our quad partners is um, that objective to ensure that the region as a whole can be safe and prosperous. And our commitment to that isn't going to change from one administration to the next because it's just so fundamentally important to all of our well-being. I mean, when we look at the Indo-Pacific region, it is so important to the world's uh, prosperity and security. Uh, I think the statistic is something like two-thirds of global growth uh, will come from the Indo-Pacific, global economic growth will come from the Indo-Pacific region in coming years. Uh, And Americans have uh, a tremendous reason to be invested uh, in the Indo-Pacific region because our own prosperity is linked so closely. Indo-Pacific region, you're talking, I don't know how many time zones, but many. <laughs> is this a, do you ever, are you ever not working? I mean, because you may need, I don't know how this all works, obviously, but you may need to talk to a, a colleague in Australia or India or Japan, and it's in the middle of the night, one of the places. Yes. Uh, it is funny that you asked that question because just uh, earlier today, I think I was explaining to someone what my day tomorrow will look like, which involves a 6 a.m. flight back to D.C., which means a very early you know, departure from our hotel here. Um, but then you know, the day will continue with my regular schedule in the day. And then tomorrow night, I will have a meeting with our quad partners, again, India, Australia, and Japan. And those meetings usually happen uh, with a start time of 10.30 p.m. in D.C., which means they go to midnight or later. Sometimes they they start later than that. Um, So it can often be a very long day when we're having to coordinate across multiple time zones. I don't mean to be flippant, but if I were to start a meeting at 10.30, when I have been up in my hotel room at 4.30, I'm not sure I'm going to be the clearest. What, what is your regimen? How, how do you make sure you have self-care and you're alert at 10.30? Well, I probably will have a nap on the okay, plane good. tomorrow. I bet that I will try to do. But usually when I do have these late night meetings, I try to have a break in between my regular work day and then when I'm starting the late night meetings. Now, one of the real um, advances that we have seen 
as a result of COVID and and the necessity for so many people to understand how we can use technology better is that we can do these meetings virtually. So when I'm having a, a meeting that starts at 1030 with Asian partners, um, we are do you know, I'm doing that from my house on my laptop. Uh, in, you know, earlier years, we, we didn't do many things virtually, I would have physically gotten on an airplane and traveled to one of the countries probably to do that meeting. So we have seen that we are able to better coordinate using a lot of these technologies. So um, I will do that meeting from home, and in between my regular work day and the start of a, a 10.30 meeting, I try to take a break to do a little exercising, to have dinner with my kids, uh, to have a little bit of downtime. Uh, and it doesn't always work, but it, <laughs> it is a goal that I set for myself. <laughs> so more virtual meetings as a result of COVID. Did, did the pandemic change anything else in, in your world? It did, absolutely. I mean, for a, a long period of time, we really were doing very little travel. Um, and that was a huge shift in the way we do diplomacy, which is really traditionally focused on building up personal relationships uh, so that you have a sense of familiarity and trust with your foreign interlocutors and can, you know, kind of make progress on achieving goals. Uh, so it really has been a big shift for the profession of diplomacy to do so much of our work virtually. Um, we have found that many of the meetings that we previously would have done in person can be done very successfully virtually. But not all. Um, and so as we have moved into this phase of COVID where it has become more endemic and more people are able to travel, we are seeing a real return to what we have identified as the most critical moments in diplomacy where that direct in-person contact is really critical to um, to to building up the trust that needs to exist between partners to achieve really difficult things together. Finally, when you talk to students about a possible career in diplomacy or at the State Department, what do you advise them for? I'm sure as many languages, knowledge as you can have, things like that. Yeah. So, you know, there's no one exact skill set or educational experience that you need to have in order to enter a career in the Foreign Service or with the State Department. Um, but if I had to sort of break it down into some broad skill sets, uh, I would say intellectual curiosity is very high at the top of that list, right? It needs to be, um, you need to have a personality type where you are constantly seeking information and thinking about how to apply that information in different contexts. Um, and of course, as part of that, it helps a lot if you have studied and have an understanding of uh, world geography and world history uh, and um, foreign cultures and foreign languages, all of those play an important part in giving you the right background, but nothing, there is no specific educational path that you have to go through. Uh, and the Foreign Service will provide people who enter uh, the Foreign Service with the training and education they need to succeed. Um, one thing that we really want people across the United States to understand is that foreign policy matters to Americans. What we are doing overseas has a direct impact on our lives here in the United States. Uh, and in order to ensure that we are running our for foreign policy uh, in as successful a way as we possibly can, we need great 
people to be working for the State Department and involved in our diplomacy. So I hope that uh, people out there listening might consider a career with the State Department. Uh, We have lots of wonderful opportunities, and uh, we want to ensure that anyone who is interested has access to the information um, that will help you learn about a career with the State Department. And the easiest way to do that is to look uh, at our website at careers.state.gov, and all the information is outlined right there. Camille Dawson is Deputy Assistant Secretary of State at the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. She is also a Fayetteville native. Our conversation was recorded yesterday at the Carver Center for Public Radio. On a brand new season of Undisciplined. I I do remember, you know, from my grandmother saying, like, your hair is your crown in glory. Racial stress doesn't actually end, right? I wake up black, I go to sleep black, I'm still black. How could an all-black team in the 1930s during the Great Depression, during Jim Crow, go to an all-white state, an all-white town like Oshkosh, play, defeat their local all-star team, leave safely, and get invited back? Being the first black county judge in Arkansas's history, just mind-blowing. I had no clue, no idea, because when I won, I went straight to work. It's not so much religion as it is spirituality. It is developing your own strength, developing your own resources as God-like. Season 3 of Undisciplined launches August 24th. This is Ozarks at Large. This summer, for the 25th summer, Teachers from across the region gathered for two weeks to practice and share their writing with the idea that what they do as part of this project can make their classrooms even better. And this summer, we spent some time with many of those teachers. Anita Ellis, who teaches senior English, French, oral composition, and forensics at Springdale Harbor High School, says she was intrigued by the idea of the summer writing project because she's always expanding her view of teaching. There's that buzzword in education, right, lifelong learners, and it's really true because uh, even even teaching the same content from year to year, you have uh, different students um, coming from different backgrounds, there's different dynamics in the classroom, and you're different too. And so how you approach um, learning Uh, There can be subtle changes or pretty dramatic changes, and it keeps it interesting. It really does. Um, I've always said if um, if I lose interest in what I'm teaching or if I decide to just, you know, repeat exactly what I did last year without... um, you know, rethinking things, uh, then I'm done. Anita says that writing, learning, and critical thinking share some very important common traits. I find that just the practice of writing is, um, is processing, is thinking. And so when I, you know, when I'm teaching my students, um, I give them time to respond, but in order to respond, they have to reflect, and writing is the perfect way to do this. So just taking a few minutes to kind of write about uh, what we've read or um, some guiding question I give them gives them a chance to start processing those ideas. Then they can bring that to the discussion, and that's where the learning happens, right, is in that processing and in that discussing. So. During the two weeks, the teachers can write essays, memoir, fiction, poetry, songs, whatever can be written. Anita shared one of her writing examples with us last month. Oh, my goodness, this writing project has been just so transformative for me and it's um, kind of brought me back to my childhood sadly I think it's partly my age too I'm kind of you know reminiscing a lot and so I'm going to share with you a piece that I call my almost horse 
I loved horses, their expressive eyes, muscular flanks, wavy manes. I even loved the smell of them. Life was clearly so much more satisfying with an equine companion. I knew this, of course, because my friend Stephanie had five horses and regularly participated in dressage events with her sisters. As luck would have it, I lived three miles away from Stephanie's farm, a reasonable bike ride on a summer's day for the thrill of mucking stalls and grooming horses and a decent chance at going for a ride in the afternoon. So began my campaign to convince my parents that what we really needed was a horse. I had it all figured out. How we could transform part of our three-acre lot into pasture, build a small barn, and thrill at becoming star equestrians. My parents were unconvinced, and when I saw when they saw that my arguments were going nowhere, I adjusted my expectations and set my sights on the family dog. Banner was a mutt, bred to be the ideal hunting companion, but relegated to the ranks of family dog when hunting didn't pan out for his original owners. He was part Irish wolfhound mixed with a labradoodle. Tall, thin, and shaggy, he inevitably evoked fits of laughter from our vet. He's the funniest looking dog I have ever seen, he would say. I was insulted because in my eyes, Banner was the most beautiful dog in my world, and he was smart. He had already mastered basic obedience, fetch, and dancing the waltz dressed in pantyhose, an apron, and a straw hat, no less. I was convinced he could learn how to jump barriers with a passenger on his back, and I had just the passenger in mind. My childhood doll, Vicky, had survived my brief stint as a doll hairdresser, leaving her with a quaff akin to a buzz cut. I now had outgrown my doll, so she lived in a cupboard in the room I shared with my sister. She could be the rider for my almost horse Banner. I had no saddle, but I could attach Vicky to Banner's back with the aid of a skipping rope. Inspired, I busied myself setting up a variety of jumps in the yard with chairs and old hockey sticks. Convinced my horse in training could easily master these, I tied Vicky to Banner's back and began the task of teaching him to fly over the hockey stick. It did not go as expected. Banner quickly learned to navigate the highest jumps by ducking under the stick. Poor Vicky was getting knocked around, but the skipping rope still held. I was so engrossed in trying to coax Banner over some of the lower jumps that I did not notice the drone of a motor approaching. A small, single-engine plane was entering the airspace of the adjacent field. Banner's hunting instincts kicked in, no doubt fueled by his desperation to distance himself from his new identity as a horse, and he took off chasing the airborne invader. Vicky bounced dangerously on his back as he bounded toward the cedar rail fence, leash in tow. Then, squirming his way under the fence, he disappeared over the neighboring hill toward the swamp in the woods below. When the lull of the airplane disappeared in the distance, Banner, evidently pleased with himself, came trotting back to the house. Vicky, now dangling beneath his belly, covered in burrs from the field and smeared with muck and slime from the swamp, was clearly not thrilled with the experience. I untied my bedraggled doll from Banner's back and disconnected his mucky leash. Freed from his constraints, my almost horse happily rolled in the lawn, making contented groaning sounds. I picked up my chairs and hockey sticks and with Vicky in tow, dejectedly went back to the house. It was clear I would never have a horse of my own, but then again, maybe that wasn't such a bad thing. Anita Ellis, a teacher at Springdale Harbor High School, reading her work for us this summer during the Northwest Arkansas Writing Project. We'll hear from other teachers who participated during the coming weeks on Ozarks at Large. Oh, and by the way, we did ask her if she would share her writing with her students this year. Oh, yes. Yes, I would now. Um, you know, ask me two weeks ago before the writing project, and it would be um, a flat no, 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 I'm going to hide this. But this writing project has really, um, I think, helped me find my voice as a writer, you know? I'm really great at essays, but this, this, 
This kind of writing, it was, it was a stretch for me, and I, yeah. This is Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. This week, a video of three law enforcement officers in Crawford County kicking, hitting, and further engaging in violent acts toward an arrested man quickly was shared around the world. Governor Asa Hutchinson tweeted he had talked with the Arkansas State Police and the ASP is investigating. That's where the weekly conversation between Roby Brock, with our partner Talk Business and Politics, and John Brummett, a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, begins. This all happened very fast. Uh, apparently, there was a, a guy with a South Carolina address who was behaving weirdly and badly, uh, apparently. And the police were called on uh, Mulberry Sher- uh, County Sheriff's deputies and a Mulberry, pol- or, or Crawford County and a Mulberry, three guys and a Mulberry policeman and, uh, showed up to attend to the, whatever uh, trouble this guy was causing at a, a convenience store. And whatever happened, and there is context to this, whatever happened, resulted in a woman entering the convenience store, seeing around the corner, those three officers, uh, and you can see it yourself, it, uh, uh, brutalizing this guy. Uh, one holds him down, one knees him repeatedly, the other, it's, it's, it's I don't recommend anybody watch it, it's sickening, uh, uh, beats his head, uh, sometimes against the, the pavement. Uh, and the thing, and, and this woman sent it to a relative in Oklahoma who posted on social media. This was like at four o'clock. Thing had happened Sunday morning, and by nine or ten, it's uh, globally viral, and politicians are falling over themselves to say, Arkansas politicians, we this uh, needs to be, uh, we will investigate this. The state police will investigate, and the officers have been either suspended without pay or put on leave while the investigation proceeds. <clears throat> and you can just do it, if you're on Twitter, just do a, a Twitter search, Mulberry Police, and the world is commenting in horror on what happened in uh, Mulberry, Arkansas. And uh, I don't know that it's representative of, I don't want to say it's representative of Arkansas, representative of police. I just want to say this is uh, this is subhuman, primitive, seems to me on its face, criminal behavior. And uh, it's going to be most interesting how we proceed uh, as, a, as a governing entity uh, uh, on this matter, because the world is watching. And you get a lot of this, uh, uh, a lot of this comment, what do you need to investigate? There's no context that could excuse what you plainly see. I believe that is true, but that is, is not to say that there's not a process to be followed. But that process uh, will be observed closely. Uh, by eyes all over the country, if not beyond, and uh, it's uh, it's it's a horrible thing to see. Uh, you, you've seen it. You've seen yes, it. I, and I and yeah. I think that the, I mean, it, it it is a disturbing video. But I think on top of that is we have seen repeatedly year after year some of these similar episodes of a citizen being beaten by multiple police officers to subdue them, and I I suppose that sometimes it is necessary when there's something violent happening that they have to defend themselves against. This guy looked pretty defenseless laying on the ground right there. And I guess I'm just, I'm disturbed that we've not learned from some past mistakes, I think is what I'm trying not to think, judge, but I think that's kind of where I'm coming at this from is what you don't really have to. Yeah. I, I appreciate that you're saying that. And that's, that's a, a good context to add and you don't have to prejudge. You just have to observe. I'm not saying what laws or, processes should be applied, what the disposition should be, uh, and the context will be informative, but in no way mitigating. He's down. He's helpless. Three guys, and they continue. Oh, uh, I don't recommend anybody see it, but but uh, go see it. But uh, it's, uh, it's a bad reflection on a lot of things. And uh, Disturbing, beyond disturbing, and sickening is uh, those are the words I would apply. Yeah. 
All right, let's turn our attention to another matter uh, that also has Arkansas in a little bit of a national context here, and that is uh, Senator Jason Rapert settles his lawsuit with the American atheist or with him, uh, um, I guess, supposedly blocking them from Facebook, and that is what the settlement says that he agrees to not block them anymore, and there's a $16,000 payment that will go along with this as part of the settlement. Both sides claiming victory. I will let you analyze for everyone out there what, what happened in this case and uh, why did it settle the way that it did, the best of your knowledge? I believe that uh, seems to be, and this is based on accounts both of, of, of the plaintiff and the defendant. You put them together and you get that American, uh, the American atheist group uh, offered to go away if he'd pay uh, a court costs, uh, in, in which case the American atheist could claim <clears throat> victory. Uh, Rapert's version is they wanted out of it. They uh, I had them beat, uh, and they wanted uh, sixteen thousand dollars to end it. So that's what we did. And I'm not. I don't. I haven't lost anything. I'm not going. I still. Yeah, I think he's still blocking people. If, uh, I don't know. Uh, and I'm not sure there was an enforcement mechanism if he if he didn't unblock. But that's uh, uh, that's legal to tell. The point is he'll be out of office and block who he wants to, like I do on Twitter. I block for the hell of it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, but it's okay for me. Uh, so you know when when Senator, I, I hate to I, I, technically, if you're scoring at home, American atheists won a $16,000 settlement. Rapert doesn't have to pay it. We do, the taxpayers. Uh, and why? And I've been asking. That, because he was representing the state. He was sued in his capacity as a state senator uh, that he can't uh, uh, violate the rights of, of, of constituents and people as a state senator, uh, and uh, the state defended him. Whether the state could have divorced itself from it in the first place and let him defend himself on his own, and he had his own lawyers, I'm I'm not up on that. Uh, I, I'm not going to pretend to know. But the state uh, the state representative uh, state represented him. The attorney general's office did. The state took it on itself, uh, and so uh, I don't. I got a lot of things to quarrel with uh, Jason Rapert about, and I have done so for years. But uh, if he wants to say. If he wants to say this was his own victory, I would amend that only to say it's a draw for you because it didn't cost him a cent, doesn't have to do anything. And uh, you get, uh, and the American atheists get to spike the ball and everybody goes away. And he's out of office in a few months and it's irrelevant. That's the way I size it up. Do you see any more significance to it than that? I do not. In, in okay. the chapter of a book <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> Right. Let's turn the page. John Brummett is a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. He spoke with Roby Brock from our partner, Talk Business and Politics. There is much more from that conversation. You can find it at talkbusiness.net. The Live at Turnbow Park Concert Series continues this Thursday, August 25th. Food and drink available in the Outdoor Dining District along with the live tunes. Thursday's concert features local bands Duo Divinas, a singer-songwriter duo known for their Bacata-style music, and the Irie Lions, an original six-piece reggae band. Live music begins at 6.30 p.m. This concert series is free and open to the public. Details at downtownspringdale.org. Tomorrow on Ozarks, the second annual Fort Smith International Film Festival is Friday and Saturday at Temple Live. The schedule features 137 official selections representing work from more than 30 countries, nations, and tribes. The festival is carrying the theme of borderlands, exploring shared humanity, experience at the borders between countries, nations, states, cities, neighborhoods, languages, races, genders, cultures, social economic classes, and ages. Tickets range from $10 to $30. You can find out more at fortsmithfilm.com. This morning, we chatted with the executive director of the Fort Smith Film Festival, Brandon Chase Goldsmith. What we received was uh, we got uh, 364 submissions from 51 different countries. And then what you do, because we learn, because every year, this is our second year, you learn from the first year. So the first year, it was just four of us watching as many films as we could. This year, we got about 30 screeners to help us watch all the films. And so what you do, you have all these films come in. 
And then you get the screeners. And so I try to get three eyes on every single film. And what we were able to do is we, um, we had about 136 hours of film come in. We learn more about the Fort Smith International Film Festival that takes place this weekend on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. You can also listen on the go with the free Ozarks at Large podcast or by accessing the show through the free KUAF app. It's been three years since we were live at Roots Festival for Ozarks at Large. This is a live edition of Ozarks as part of the Fayetteville Roots Festival. But Friday, August 26th, we're back with a live radio show from the Fayetteville Public Library. Musicians at this year's Roots Festival will join us on the library's new event center stage. Join us in person or live right here on the radio for the return of the live Ozarks at Large Roots Festival broadcast Friday, August 26th at noon. Before we wrap up this Tuesday afternoon edition of Ozarks, we're giving our last words mostly to Cree Banton, host of the podcast Undisciplined. You may have heard last week my conversation with her and the producer of Undisciplined, Matthew Moore, previewing the third season. Well, here's something you didn't hear in that conversation from a question I asked them before the interview, just to get a good audio level. Cree, what is your favorite vegetable? Callaloo. Very good. <laughs> Matthew, what is yours? Uh, mine is also Kalaloo, believe no, it or not. Do you know what Kalaloo is? I have no is? idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a spinach. Okay. It's a Jamaican kind of spinach that we eat. We really don't even necessarily eat it like a vegetable. Like it, We don't eat it like um, raw. Like as a side? So We cook it with like codfish, like salted ah, codfish. Oh. Yeah. All right. And um, like wrapped around the fish, no, or like just, salted. Like, so oh, if, you, if you have salted fish, so you like you boil the salt fish to get the salt out of it, oh, <laughs> but you put the salt in it to preserve it. It's right. almost like codfish was what they fed to the slaves, huh? Coming from up north, mm-hmm. and because all the lands in the Caribbean had to be used for sugar, right? Exactly, <laughs> so there was no local food grown. So, um, we get it. Boil out the salt. So you boil it like three times, mm-hmm. right? Because high blood pressure right. is a black issue. And then you tear it apart, like flake it out. Okay. Saute it in onions and oh. tomatoes and green peppers and stuff. Mm. And then you steam down the callaloo on it. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So Sounds it good. Looks, it looks something like this. Callaloo? Uh, callaloo. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So somewhat similar to like like collard greens. It's like collard greens or uh, yeah. Ooh. Said Oh yeah. And oh, oh, oh. Uh and and you put a like a jalapeno in there or a... Well, Jamaicans tend to like spicier things. So yeah. yeah. So no, you, I like... you could saute it in pepper. Yeah. And now we're talking. Yeah. Peppers, onions. I love onions. Yeah. Garlic. Can you yeah. pick up callaloo here? I get it in the can, which is yeah. not optimal. Right. But um, Could it be grown here or is it I've grown it in okay. my backyard, but obviously hmm. by by October you got to pack it right. up. Right. Right. Yeah. Karee Banton is the host of Undisciplined. Matthew Moore is the producer of the podcast. The third season launches tomorrow. We'll have an excerpt from that first episode of the new season on our show tomorrow. You can hear the entire episode wherever you get your podcast or at KUAF.com. Undisciplined is a collaboration between the University of Arkansas African and African American Studies Program, KUAF, and Ozarks at Large. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and all of Logan County. Contributors for our Tuesday afternoon included Jacqueline Froelich and Roby Brock. Timothy Dennis produced today's show Inside the Herald and Blanchcock News Studio. By the way, Ryan Versi is KUAF's underwriting director. We do return tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. here on 91.3 KUAF and always on your schedule at the Ozarks at Large podcast. If you're ever interested in hearing something from a couple weeks or so ago, you can go to ozarksatlarge.com. Our theme, written and performed by Daryl Sean. Thanks so much for being with us again 
and we do appreciate your continued support. From the Carver Center in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums.